Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Okay? Good. I was just thinking when the, the mics went out a few minutes ago, we were singing how the Bible says that if uh, everyone goes silent, the rocks will cry out. And I just thought of how great it would be if we didn't need the microphones and we were singing so loud and praise to God. It's just a fantastic thought. And I was talking to Nell, and Nell says to me, you know, I hope the mic doesn't go out when you're speaking. And then she says to me, on second thought, maybe it'd be a good thing. <laughs> it's great encouragement, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pray for us just one more time, so if we can just pray. Um, Father, we, we, we love you so much. Um, and we thank you so much for your word. Um, God, we thank you so much for your spirit. And we would just ask today that you would just speak to us through your word, by your spirit, and that uh, when we would go out of here, our minds and our hearts and our attitudes and our lives would be changed, and that we'd be more like Jesus. I just pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Uh, The talk today, I guess what I want to speak to you about uh, is who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Um. And so when you want to answer a question like who is the greatest, I kind of was thinking about, well, who is the greatest person that people say have lived on the earth? And so when you want to answer that kind of question, you obviously go to Google because Google has answered everything. So I Googled who is the greatest person to ever live. And I got all the lists that I got. I got five or six basic people. And I wanted just to ask, this, this may fall flat on its face, but to ask you if you would think, uh, there were two of them who were Brits on the list. Does anybody know what, what one of them one of the Brits might have been. Winston Churchill was one. Another one, anyone know? It's a writer. Shakespeare was the other one. Uh, what about, let's see, what about uh, a moral and social leader? Martin Luther King Jr. Anybody else? Gandhi was one of them. Jesus was one of them. It was funny because the people that said Jesus, almost all of them said, uh, Jesus was the greatest person to ever lived, but I'm not a Christian and I don't necessarily believe in him. It's kind of funny they all said that. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was on the list. Alexander the Great was on the list. A lot of people that we might think of as, as who is the greatest person to ever have lived. And you know what? There's a lot of people, uh, including myself, and I'm sure some of you who desire to be great. I mean, we want to be the best husband or wife. We want to be the best parent or friend or Christian that you can be. Uh, So in a lot of ways, being great or wanting to be great is a good thing. Uh, However, there are times when our desire to be great can kind of reveal an attitude of our heart or our mind that is not pleasing to God. And and this was true uh, in Jesus' time as it is today. Uh, So what I like to kind of do is before we get into this section of Mark chapter 10, I want to kind of go back to Mark chapter 9 and build kind of a picture of what's going on uh, with the disciples, because I really think this passage is just about their hearts and their minds, and about kind of the things that they're thinking, and hopefully we can apply that to us today. Um, But there are several times in Mark's gospel where Jesus um, is talking to his disciples about wanting to be great. And in chapter 9, while Jesus and his disciples are on the way to a, a certain city, they begin to discuss with one another who's the greatest. And Jesus says to them in verse 34, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. And then he does a really uh, neat int- illustration as he gets a little child. It's probably a, a toddler, maybe two years old. It might even have been one of Peter's children. And he takes him as an illustration. And he says, look, here's a child, okay? I'm, I'm, you guys are talking about you want to be the greatest. And he says, actually, uh, you as a Christian, you need to be like this little child. Well, what exactly did it mean? Well, um, he wanted them basically to understand that little children, number one, are completely trusting. You guys know this if you have children. You can tell a three or four-year-old child just about anything, and they will believe you, right? 
And also, he wanted to illustrate to them as a Christian that you should be humble, okay? Now, I'm a high school teacher, so I realize that some kids are not exactly humble anymore, but evidently a couple thousand years ago, they're pretty humble as children. So he's trying to convey that to the disciples, okay? We see again in Mark chapter 10, and if you've been at this church very long, you know that uh, the pastor, Mark, he says this verse quite a lot, so I won't say it again. Uh, but the disciples are uh, rebuking, or Jesus is rebuking the disciples because people are trying to bring their little children to Jesus to bless him. And, and again, he takes a little child in his arms, and this time he says something a little bit different. He says, look, um, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. Okay, so Jesus uses these two illustrations with children to show that a ch- the attitude of a true believer will have the characteristics of trust, just like a little child does, have the characteristics of humility, and also another characteristic of complete dependency. Obviously, we know little children are completely dependent upon their parents for everything, and as a believer, that is how we should be towards God. And also, as Mark continues, I want to take this idea of being dependent on to the next bit that he talks about, which is what Lindsay spoke about last week, Lindsay and Gordon, about the rich young ruler. So I want you to think about this idea of dependency in the context of the rich young ruler. Okay? And a lot of you are probably familiar with that story, and so you probably know that it's really not about a story about, um, about money being evil, uh, and it's really not a story about salvation coming to those or only to those who give away all their possessions. Okay? Really what it is a story about is a man who did not depend on Jesus for salvation. Instead, he was depending on his works. Okay? So it's a story about a man whose treasure is actually in his wealth, not in Christ. Okay? So the reason why Jesus asked him to give up his wealth is because that was the one thing that kind of stood in between him and salvation, not because it was evil. Okay? And we know from the story that after this encounter, the young man went away sadly because he was very wealthy. All right? And as usual, what happens is Jesus takes these encounters and then he uses it as a teaching moment for his disciples. So after this has happened, his disciples see it, uh, Jesus says a very kind of shocking statement to them. And he just says, look, um, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And for his disciples and the people listening, this was, this was almost crazy because uh, in the Jewish mind, they thought, look, if anyone is going to enter the kingdom of God, it's going to be someone who's rich because the only reason that they would be rich is because God has blessed them. Okay? So this went against their deeply held beliefs and convictions. And then after they talk about that for a bit, Jesus says an even more shocking statement. And if I'm repeating this from last week, sorry, I think it's good to go back and touch on it. He says this, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, like camel, eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when you look back in the Greek and you study the words and you study the context in the Hebrew and in the Roman times, do you know what you find out that that phrase means? That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's a very heavy statement, okay? It's a very heavy statement. And I think that there's probably two reasons. I I think when some people look at that verse, they try to kind of make it a little softer, and they kind of relate it to the eye of a needle being this small gate that was in the wall in Jerusalem, and, you know, people would ride their camels around and have to get off their camel and, you know, shove the camel through the small gate in the wall to get it in. I don't think that that's the best way to look at it for two reasons. Number one, because if you were riding your camel around Jerusalem and you saw the real small gate, you'd probably just drive around and look for a bigger gate. And number two, 
the disciples, they make a comment right after Jesus says this. Okay? So Jesus says, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And then disciples, notice they don't say, well, that sounds really difficult, but I think we can do it if we try hard. They simply say, well, then who can be saved? In other words, they are understanding that Jesus is saying, look, this is an impossible thing with man. And then his final remark, Jesus comments, look, this is impossible with people, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Yeah. So the first kind of rabbit trail I want to go down with this, if you're sitting here thinking, you know, uh, a lot of people think I, I've done some things in my life, I've said some things, I've thought some things, and there's absolutely no way that God can forgive me and save me from that. And I just want to tell you that from what Jesus is saying, that anything is possible with God. So don't ever think that you've done something or said something or thought something that God cannot forgive. Okay? So once again, with these three kind of illustrations, two with the children, one with the rich young ruler, Basically, Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, as a Christian, I want you to be humble, I want you to be completely trusting, and I want you to be completely dependent upon me, number one, for your salvation, but also for many other things in life. Okay? Now, one of the reasons Jesus is focusing in on this is because in chapter 10, he is starting to go towards Jerusalem. Okay, this is going to be the last time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he knows what's about to happen. Okay, so when they are walking to Jerusalem, he knows what's about to happen, and one last time, he tries to remind the 12 disciples and some other people what's going on, okay? He gives them some bad news. He says, look, we're about to go to Jerusalem, and and this is what's going to happen, okay? I'm going to be delivered to the chief priests. They're going to turn me over to the Romans. They're going to mock me. They're going to beat me. They're going to pull up my beard, and they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die, tries one last time to tell them this because he also understands that the disciples during this time, their minds are completely somewhere different. Yeah? Jesus is going this way. I'm focused on Jerusalem because I'm going to go and suffer and I'm going to die. The disciples are, are, are off here in left field doing something completely else. See, his closest friends, they are actually thinking that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem that he is going to bring about the physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. And as a result, as this event gets closer, they start maneuvering for positions of power. They think Jesus, he's going to be the king of the world, which he will be one day. He's going to be the king of the world, so basically, uh, I need to work out with him where I'm going to fit in this plan, and surely it's going to be at the top. Forgive the long intro. I think the intro is longer than the talk, but that was the intro. So now we're finally at the passage that was read earlier by Sandy, okay? Now, on the way, after Jesus has explained this, they're starting to walk to Jerusalem. All of this maneuvering, it kind of comes to a head. You know, it's like the pot on the stove. It's been boiling, it's been boiling. And finally, it just bubbles over. And it does that in the form of a question by James and John. Okay? So all the disciples are talking about this, thinking about this. Who's going to be the greatest here in this new, this new kingdom? It finally pops over. And James and John work up the courage to ask Jesus a question. And actually, when you read Matthew, he he has interesting insight in this. It turns out that James and John were too cowardly to ask Jesus on their own, and so they got their mother to ask him. And one commentator that was really interesting said that it might be the reason why is because James and John's family and Jesus' family were somewhat related, and so they might have tried to to bring in kind of like family ties to kind of persuade Jesus to, to do this, okay? So if you have a Bible, we can look now at... Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. 
and we're going to kind of go through this text, and, and it's going to break down, I think, into two, two basic parts. Verse 35, uh, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That question sounds suspect, doesn't it? Have you ever had anybody ask you a question? I had someone a couple weeks ago said, hey, can you do a favor for me? And then they pause, like I'm supposed to agree to it before I know what they're going to ask me to do. And I think Jesus kind of clues in on this. And the next verse he says, uh, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, you're going to have to say it, what do you want? And they said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Okay, translation, this is what we want. Okay, you're going to be king, Jesus. We know that you're number one, but we want to be your number two and number three guys. We want you to give that to us. And Jesus' response is very interesting. He doesn't just say no. I thought about that. I said, you know, if I was in that position, I would probably say, you know, you're not being humble. You're just wanting to get power for yourself. Absolutely not. You, you can't be my disciples. You're not getting it. You know, just go away. He doesn't say that. The next verse he says, <clears throat> Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Do not know what you're asking. Jesus, we want to sit at your right and your left. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand what you're saying. So what do you mean? We understand what we're saying. We want, we want places of importance. We want to be great. And Jesus continues and he says, look, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? It's a lot of baptizing. Okay, so he uses two weird illustrations. Look, you don't understand what you're asking, and then he talks about a cup, and then he talks about being baptized. So what is he exactly saying with this, okay? If you look through the scripture, and you look at it, when it, when it, most of the time it talks about a cup, it's usually associated with things that are not pleasant, like the wrath of God or suffering. Okay? And if you look at the idea of baptism, it's usually associated with the idea of dying, so what is Jesus saying to him? He's like, look, you, you think you're asking to be great. You think you're asking for a prominent position, but ask, actually what you're asking for is a life of suffering and death. So that's kind of strange. Baptism, he's meaning his death. How, how exactly that, does that work? And there's a really great picture of this. Um, and by the way, if you've never been to a service at St. Paul's at night when they baptized by immersion, you should go because it's really amazing. And this is why I think it is. I think baptism by immersion, it proclaims Jesus' death and resurrection. When you see someone baptized, if you think about it, when someone gets baptized in water, the person baptizing them pushes them down like that. I, I've been baptized uh, in water, and what tends to happen when you lay back in water is your feet go up because you're floating. And if you can imagine a person laying just a bit under the water, completely stretched out, you can kind of picture also someone who's dead laying in the ground, and they're stretched out just under the ground. So it kind of pictures death. And then what happens with the person is, is doing it brings them back up out of the water. That signifies resurrection. It's a beautiful picture. It's a proclamation of the gospel, baptism is. But basically what Jesus is saying is, look, his point is that, and we can apply this to our lives now, okay, is that those who will receive the highest honor in the kingdom, okay, because the kingdom will come. There is a day in the future when it will come, okay? Those who receive the highest honor in the kingdom will be the ones who suffer the most now for Christ in the gospel. And I'll say that again. Those who receive the highest honor in the kingdom will be the ones who suffer the most for Christ in the gospel now. Jesus says it a different way in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned, to the, crowd, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, 
Look, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, that's suffering, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, losing your life. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And Paul takes it one step further in 2 Timothy when he's talking to a young pastor named Timothy. And he actually calls him, calls him to suffer. So Paul is calling Timothy to suffer with him. He said, ooh, it's the half-term break. Why are you telling us all this? Well, I just want you to hear what it says. So 2 Timothy, Paul is saying, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Okay? So Jesus has told them some truth about this and hopefully it's changing their thinking. And you can imagine James and John sitting there for Paul and Paul's and just thinking about this, okay. That might not be what we bargained for, but in the next verse they simply answer, they said to him, we are able. In other words, okay, Jesus, you're telling us we've got to go through some suffering. We've got to end up giving up our lives for you. And Jesus says to them, all right, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, okay, if you're ready to do this, if you're willing to do this, then you will live a life suffering for my sake in the gospel. And if we look through the, the scriptures as well as church history, we know that that's true. You can read in Acts chapter 12 about James, who's actually beheaded, one of the first disciples, I think the first disciple to be uh, martyred for the faith. And then there's a church historian who adds to this uh, a pretty amazing story about how the person that was accusing uh, the apostle James was so moved by what he was saying and by his demeanor, and by his character and attitude, essentially at his trial, that he repented and became a Christian and church history said that they were beheaded together. It was a pretty powerful thing. And as you probably know, John lived a, a pretty tough life. He was exiled to an island off of uh, what's now Turkey. Uh, and when I, when I first was reading you know, about the island of Patmos that he was exiled to, I thought, well, that wouldn't be difficult, right? I mean, it's kind of like being sentenced to live in the Maldives for a few years. He's laying on the beach. It's easy. But this island, Patmos, um, is only about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide at its widest point, And it's just filled with rocks. And the Romans kind of used it as a prison colony just to send uh, people that they didn't want messing around in their affairs. He was exiled there, and God did an amazing thing and gave him the book of the Revelation to write down. But if you look at verse 40, Jesus continues and says, look, um, you, you might live a life of suffering, but you want those high positions, they're not mine to give. Verse 40 says, but to sit on my right, on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, God has got that prepared. And it's kind of it's it's interesting because when you think about Jesus, you think, well, hang on a minute, why doesn't Jesus, why doesn't Jesus, why is he not able to give that, you know? Is Jesus not God? Does he not have the same authority and power? Does he not know what's going to happen? You know, what's going on here? And I think what Jesus is doing is he's setting up the second half of this passage, okay? Because the beautiful thing about how God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity work is that they're absolutely all equal. But Jesus chooses to submit himself to the Father. He chooses to serve, if you will, serve the Father and do his will on earth. And in that way, he gives up some of, some of his rights and privileges as part of the Godhead. And this beautiful truth permeates down through our lives every day, in our marriages, yeah? Husbands and wives, okay? Completely, absolutely equal in everything. In fact, as many husbands are probably say our wives are much better than we are, I would say that. But what happens in that is that the wife chooses to submit herself underneath the authority of the husband. 
and serve him. It's a beautiful picture of servanthood. Okay? So as Jesus and John and James are having this dialogue, the other, the other ten disciples are around and they're listening. What do you think they do? I mean, you would think that they would be like, oh, James and John, come on, why are you guys asking this? Come on, Jesus said he's going to the cross. Let's just support him, let's be with him. Well, it says in verse 41, verse 41, unfortunately, the situation gets worse. It says, hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignant with James and John. In other words, they got angry. And I don't think it was like righteous anger. What I personally think it was is that they were upset because James and John had asked Jesus the question first. They'd kind of beat them to the punch. And they were upset about it. They were still, all this time, worried about themselves and what position they would have. And if you think about it, there were only 12 of them, right? If Jesus is going to be the king, you'd think you would be satisfied with being in the top 12 rulers of the entire planet. But no, they were still trying to figure out who amongst the 12 were the greatest. So Jesus kind of stops. And he, he, he calls what I like to call a holy huddle. And he brings them around. Verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus says to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And we can see the two great kind of ideas about leadership and about greatness, and about power and authority are coming down, and Jesus is explaining one way or the other. And the simple illustration that I could think of, if someone was trying to lead a group of people, let's say we were going out that, those back doors, and the person at the front was trying to lead, they got two options. They can try to be authoritative, you know, stand up, be quiet, get in a line, go out the door now, do it, do what I say. So people choose to lead like this. Or the leader could say, you know what, we're going this way, I'm going to go first, you guys come and follow me. And you guys know just as well as I do. Jesus was the kind of servant leader that said, look, I'm not just going to tell you to do something that I haven't done first. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do it before you. And this is just the amazing thing about Jesus, okay? Jesus does not sit back and tell James and John, look, you want to be my disciples and you go spend a whole life of suffering and you give up your life for me. I'm going to go hang out at Mary Magdalene's. I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to eat some bread. You guys can go do that. He doesn't say that, does he? Absolutely not. Verse 44. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just a real quick word play in that. Amazing two words. The word for slave, it means for someone to be bound up with ropes or chains. When Jesus says later on, to give his life as a ransom for many, that word ransom, the root word from that, it means to unbound someone that's tied up in chains and ropes. A beautiful picture. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm just not telling you guys to go suffer and die for me. What I'm gonna do first is I'm gonna go to the cross and I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die for you. You know, we have a Lord, (laughs) we have a Lord who asks a lot from us. He does not just ask for our time on Sundays or on the weekends or at life group. He asks us for our entire lives. That's a big ask. He might ask some of us even to be persecuted at our work, being made fun of, to be persecuted from our family for just saying, yeah, I prayed before a meal and I believe Jesus is a real person. He might ask some of us to move to other countries. He definitely does that to some people. 
He might ask some people to physically suffer for the gospel. Did you know in the 20th century there were more people martyred for the gospel than all the centuries before that? It's amazing, isn't it? And true, there's a lot more people born now, but there's still a lot of people. And some of those he might ask to give the ultimate sacrifice and actually lose their life for the sake of the gospel and for him. But you know why he can ask that? It's because once again, he suffered and died for us already. And the even more amazing thing about that is that I think sometimes, especially in the West, we get in our minds that we make every decision based on what is going to bring us the most comfort. And I think sometimes we fail to understand that it's only when we give up our lives for Christ's sake and for the gospel that we find true peace and true satisfaction doesn't quite make sense right if you want if you want to be the greatest you serve if you want to gain your life you lose your life that's God's logic yeah that's what he seems to be saying um just want to kind of start wrapping up and I want to close with uh, just some of the things that God is kind of doing in my life about this um I, most of you know I'm a math teacher at a high school and uh, it's just amazing to see, you know, everyone has good days and bad days at their work, and it, it is amazing to see that through good and bad days, God is working, okay? And I just share this with you because I want, I want you guys to think, think about how God can work and move in your lives, at your places of work in your family. Um, there are two teachers, myself and one other, they get together every Thursday morning since the beginning of the term, uh, and we have just been praying that God is going to move in our school. We've been praying for our leadership. We've been praying for our students. We've got some tough students to go to that school. We've been praying that God would just get a hold of their hearts. Um, and the other teacher got an idea to start a Christian club on Fridays at break time. And we thought, you know what, we'll try, we'll try it. We'll send the message out to all the form tutors and they'll give the message to their classes. We might get two or three or four students come that are Christians, you know, that really want to talk more and learn more about Christ. Uh, and, and we've done this since, I guess, October, September, October. And every single time we have it, I have 32 desks or 32 seats in my classroom. All the desks are filled and there are 10 students standing at the back. And all we do is come and we talk about Jesus and what he's done and we listen to him, we ask some questions, we get him to talk back to us. And it never ceases to amaze me how no matter where, where I am or where you guys are in your life, God is always wanting to bring people to know him. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we watched a youth alpha video. And some of you may have seen this. If you haven't, you should definitely go and, and look it up. Um, and I think the title of it is Why Jesus Had to Die. I don't know if anybody's seen this or not. But basically, it starts out, and we show this to, to the students. It starts out when there's two friends, okay? One of the friends, uh, he chooses a good path, and he grows up and becomes a lawyer, and then becomes a judge. Yeah, has a good life. And then the other friend uh, gets into a life of crime and becomes a thief. And he grows up and gets arrested, well, about halfway through the video, it shows, you, shows the two friends coming back together in the courtroom, okay? And one of the friends is the judge, and he's sitting back up here on the top, and he's got his cloak on, he's got his gavel. And the other friend comes in bound, you know, handcuffs, and the bailiff's bringing him in. And they read the sentence, and they say, look, you've stolen all these things. Can you pay back what you have stolen? Of course, the guy says, absolutely not, can't, can't pay it back. And then the judge takes the gavel. You know, I'm talking to the kids, we're watching it. So what do you think he's going to do? raises the gavel, pounds it on the desk, guilty as charged. Pause the video. Ask the kids in the classroom. So the thief, who, what, is that, what does that represent? Who is that? You know, and most of, these kids aren't, most of these kids are not Christians. I think that represents us, sir. I think it's when we do things that are wrong, God doesn't like. 
And I said, what, what about the judge? Why do you think that the judge, it was his friend. Why do you think the judge, you know, condemned him and called him guilty? Complete silence. Everybody's sitting there staring at me. One boy, 12-year-old boy, puts his hand up. Not a Christian. He says, because the judge has to be just. It's a quote from him. I just thought, yes. You see, you know that, that God, he is a judge and he is just. He is a judge, and, he is, and when he looks at us, uh, he will judge every wrong thing that we've done. Absolutely, will not acquit the guilty for one sin. But you know, something else that's great about God is that he's a loving father. Push play on the video. Does anybody can guess what the judge then does with the gavel, if you've seen it? Stands up, he's back there, stands up, he takes his robes off, and then he walks down to the front where the other thief is being taken to jail, and he takes out his checkbook, and he writes a check for everything that for everything that the thief couldn't pay. And he gives him the check. And he says, here, like, I paid it for you. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to pay the price that we cannot pay for many. You see, God is just. Romans 5 says he is just and a justifier of sinners. So what I would like to do is kind of we close is I'm just going to kind of recap on some things. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. But what I'd like us to do if we could is just kind of stand to our feet. If we could do that, please. And I'm going to just pray over you. So if we could just, just bow our heads, please, and close our eyes. Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would just come and move and just speak to us in the ways that we need to hear, Lord. Um, God, if, there, if there's just anything in us that's just seeking to be great for our own purposes, Lord, I just pray that you reveal that to us. And I just pray, uh, Jesus, how you did with your disciples, that you just change our hearts in that, Father. And God, I just pray for um, the people in this room that they would just go out and be leaders for you in a humble and a servant way. Father God, I just pray uh, for people in the room who are thinking that they've done done things that you could absolutely never forgive. God, I just pray that they remember Jesus' words, that there is absolutely nothing that is impossible with God. Father God, I just pray for the Christian in this room who's been guilt and shame for past sins that they've done. I pray that you just remind them that you've not only forgiven them, but that sin has been paid for and punished on the cross of Christ. And there is no room for shame and there's no room for guilt. And God, I just pray last for the people in here who just who maybe do not know you, Father. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just knock on the door of their heart and that they would just listen and open up their heart to you, Father, and maybe trust you for the first time today. We love you so much, and we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.